Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Nightmare on Film Street. The current time is 6.66. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife. But it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on Nightmare Time. So, let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm John. I'm Kim. And this week we have another double feature for you of female-directed horror films, beginning with Mary Heron's American Psycho from 2000 and closing out with Lynn Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin from 2011. It's always nice when the title and the year rhyme. You didn't even mention the title of this episode, which is probably the greatest thing we have ever come up with. It's hip to be scared! It's hip to be scared. I'm vibing. Yeah, just put an axe in your enemy's enemy's face, light a cigar, and enjoy that tune. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Patrick Bateman would do, and he's, well, he looks like he's having a good time. That's right, this week on the podcast, we are closing out our Women in Horror Month celebration with two female-directed horror films. Super stoked to talk about these two movies. But before we get into them, as is... What we normally do here on Nightmare on Film Street. John, what is keeping you creepy this week? Well, I got two, really kind of three, I don't know fuck, if that's allowed. four oh, movie whoa, recommendations. Whoa, whoa, Most importantly, there is a there's a movie coming out from IFC, from your friends at IFC Midnight this Friday, uh, February 26th, The Vigil, directed by Keith Thomas. We caught this movie back at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2019, which feels like an eternity ago it at this point. It was an eternity ago. Kinda, yeah. Super creepy, crazy haunting movie. It's a tight little story about a person who has left the Orthodox Jewish community, but is asked to be a shomer uh, to guard a dead body overnight until the morning. And guess what? It gets real scary. (laughs) We're actually going to be talking with the director, Keith Thomas, on next week's episode of the podcast. So you've got plenty of time to check out that movie, but I'm pretty sure we we keep the spoilers to a minimum on that chat. It was also recently announced that he's going to be the director of Blumhouse's Firestarter remake. And we did find time to ask him at least one question about that remake and and what he thinks of the Stephen King book. Yeah, that movie was 
so super scary. I'm so excited for everybody to check it out and to finally be able to talk about it with people. We haven't had a spooky like night in a haunted house movie in a while. Yeah, and it's a completely fresh take on that subgenre. If you've got any questions that you want answered after watching that movie, I guarantee we ask them for you on next week's episode. I wanted to know everything about that movie because it's it's definitely going to be on people's scariest movies of 2021 uh, at the end of the year. So what else do you got to recommend there, John? What's What else is on the list? So for a while now, Kim has been singing the praises of this super hip, super retro jellyfish monster oh movie. Oh my God. From the 60s. <laughs> Sting of Death. Sting of Death. Directed by William Griffey. I recently learned how to pronounce his name because I watched the documentary, They Came From the Swamp, the films of William Griffey, which is on the Arrow video channel right now. You can buy the whole box set and get all of his films. Which we might have to do. We might have to do. <laughs> Yeah, we've seen a good handful of them now. They are all great, and the artwork is incredible. So good. But, I mean, if you want to check them out, you can you can get a free 30-day trial membership of Arrow's streaming service. That's what we're, we've been enjoying lately. And I found out through that documentary that they filmed Sting of Death. It was in the can, ready to go to drive-ins in the local Florida Everglades area. But... They wouldn't play the movie at these drive-ins unless they had a second feature to give them, which they didn't have. Of course, that wasn't going to stop some rogue filmmakers from getting their movie on the screen. So they filmed another fucking movie in 14 days. I love it. Wrote, produced, shot, edited, you know, like all of that. 14 days. It's called Death Curse of Tartu. Uh, it was played on a double bill with Sting of Death, and I highly encourage you to watch both of those movies it's back to back. pretty bonkers. There's some very interestingly shot snake and alligator attacks. Oh, like, yeah. It is almost as bonkers and amazing as Sting of Death, but if you haven't seen Sting of Death yet, we've been talking about it all year, so go fucking find it. Go watch it. Yeah, low-budget filmmaking at its finest, and both of those movies have absurd dance sequences. So hip. Like, too hip to be scared. <laughs> Bringing it right back around. Love it. Kim, what's keeping you creepy this week? Yeah, we've actually gotten back into the whole Twitch stream of things. We've been recommended the last couple months. People have been telling us to check out this game called Phasmophobia, which is, if you're unfamiliar, a ghost hunting game, first person style, in which you and up to three other people enter a haunted house and you have to ghost hunt, determine the type of ghost that's haunting the place and fulfill your objectives before the ghost murders you. Yeah, you get your fucking before soul the ripped ghost apart. murders you. We've, we've been murdered <laughs> a few times it's scary every time it is terrifying and if you listen to this podcast a fair bit you know that i am a huge wuss especially when it comes to video games because something about controlling the character during scary elements i just can barely handle it so naturally we are streaming those reactions live on twitch so you guys can uh, live vicariously through my terror uh so (laughs) if you want to join us this friday starting at 9 p.m eastern we'll go for a couple hours so if you want to pop in just say hi that's at twitch.tv slash nightmare on film street Twitch also records the stream, so if you want to check the last couple out, and there's one moment where John and I full out, like, screamed in, I think it was the last one we did last Friday. Yeah, I'm not happy that my jump scare face is live on the internet now, yeah, but it it's there. It's you can there. see it. So, yeah, Friday at 9pm we'll be playing that. We're gonna try to do it at least once a week, at least until we uh, get sick of this game, but so far it is pretty darn terrifying. So, yeah, come, uh, come hunt some ghosts with us on Friday. This week's episode is a little lengthy. Uh, you probably already know that if you've seen the runtime before you clicked play on this uh, on this episode in your podcast catcher. So we're gonna we're gonna get right to it. But just a heads up: if you're a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> And you're listening. We're very sorry. We we really don't know the difference between psychopathy and sociopathy, and we 
really think we do. We really think we do, but we really don't. <laughs> I think we know enough to talk at length about what we don't know. But thankfully, we're just here to talk about two movies today. Two fucking rad movies about sociopaths or psychopaths. Or neither. Or neither. That's the real interesting twist when you get down to it. <laughs> oh, man. Let's kick it off with American Psycho. New card. What do you think? Oh, very nice. Patrick, he's so sweet. Jean? Yes, Patrick? Would you like to accompany me to dinner? Sabrina, why don't you dance a little? Christy, get down on your knees. We're not through yet. That's a wonderful suit. You look so soft. I don't think I can control myself. If you stay, something bad will happen. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. any witnesses or fingerprints actually yes hmm you're inhuman i know my uh behavior can be erratic sometimes hey paul so what do you do i'm into uh well murders and executions mostly I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh, <laughs> I just had to kill a lot of people. American Psycho, directed by Mary Heron, is currently sitting at a 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb, 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it currently holds a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. How many times do you think you've seen this movie? Because uh, according to my letterbox, we watched it like 11 days ago. A solid million, I think. <laughs> Just a nice even keel million. The we- That's the weirdest thing about this movie is I have no memory of watching it for the first time. I have no vague memory of it. I thoroughly know this movie from beginning to end, which for me is kind of rare. Because I have a horrible memory. Sure. And uh, I think that's why we started this podcast. So that way in 20 years from now, you can go back and be like, what were my 20s like? (laughs) What movies did I like? Yeah, it's so weird how insanely watchable this movie is. Oh, yeah. And like thoroughly enjoyable in a really weird way for how violent and sexually affronting it is and just how... I mean, these characters live in a completely different world from our own. It's not like I'm I'm putting on young girl coming of age and I can remember what the Wonder Years were like. I have no idea what this man's life is like, but I'm just like, ha ha ha, Bateman, you fool. Isn't that like a super important part of this movie, though? Just that rich people live in a different world? Absolutely. I think that's that's definitely kind of what the film is 
tongue-in-cheek hinging on the entire thing because there's such an inconsequential nature to what Patrick Bateman thinks he is that it doesn't matter whether it's true or not because everybody's living in their own little narcissistic bubbles and nobody would notice either way. Yep. Which is very wonderful. It's incredible. You know, it's so, so insanely watchable. You you talked you oh you said something there that just reminded me of a line from this movie and 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 the thing is this movie is just full of just mic drop lines. The whole movie is mic drops. There and and right up at the beginning too, there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman. Just like everything in this movie is incredible. So, I'm going to do my best not to try and just talk about all the great lines from this movie that I that I really enjoy but it's funny that you were like mic drop moment because I was definitely gonna say that this movie is very memeable <laughs> oh yeah so many scenes at any scene where Patrick Bateman's about to kill anybody it's just like screen grab <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel very conflicted sometimes when I want to use the photo of him pointing in the mirror winking because I all, use we, I, I use it a lot on Twitter <laughs> and I, and I use it for reaction gifs like when people follow Friday Us or recommend our podcast. I use the one of him like checking out his biceps and pointing yeah. like, is this weird? Are they going to get the, the tongue-in-cheek nature of this? Because <laughs> I have this weird thing. I, I guess you call it social anxiety. Sure. Where I use GIFs so that I don't have to write up a big thank you because it makes me really uncomfortable and awkward and whatever. The GIFs are the... So I drop the, a GIF. It's the language it's, of the internet, I'm telling but you. But if somebody just story. replies with naked Patrick Bateman with no thank you, no not, nothing explaining the GIF, no cheeky winky face. Just... No cheeky winky face. <laughs> Just Patrick. It's, I'm gonna tell you right now. Worst, worse if you send a GIF of Patrick midthrust with, with a, a cheeky, cheeky winky, winky face. A hundred times worse. Oh God, I might have misconstrued this GIF, but now I really misconstrued it. Yeah, because if they take it the wrong way, it's just a GIF with no emojis. That's on them. Oh boy. Now, see, now I can never go on Twitter again. Nope. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe, honestly, recommendation of the decade. Don't go on Twitter ever again. Not going to lie, though. If I go to my most used GIFs, it's definitely in there. Oh, yeah, for sure. That one is my go-to and the one of Freddy Krueger putting his sunglasses on, like cool Freddy Krueger. Yep. That one's universal. I mean, maybe a few down there is probably Patrick Bateman pointing at his uh, his cassette, his CD player. And doing his little dance in his raincoat. (laughs) Man, that scene is... So this is this is a term we've used before, and I would ascribe it to the whole movie, and especially that scene. Underrated, overrated. This whole movie is underrated, overrated. Yeah, every, everybody agrees it's great. It's maybe a near-perfect film, but somehow it still deserves more credit than, so, it, than, it, than it gets. When we were about to sit down to record this, I was trying to think up talking points and anything I wanted to say about this movie. And, and the first thing that came to mind, and I can't believe I'm saying this out loud because you're, you're definitely going to give me huge eyebrows for saying this. I'm getting them is, ready. Okay, American Psycho is to horror mm-hmm. what Clueless is to comedies in that American Psycho is like insanely watchable and kind of plotless, but so easy to love and fun to watch throughout. It's just a sequence of scenes of this man progressing in his believed psychopathic breakdown or yeah. killer spree. But it's 
really lighthearted and fun, and it's a real great adventure, and it's about the friends we made along the way. Lighthearted and fun. <laughs> <laughs> Feed me a stray cat. Yeah. Lighthearted and fun. <laughs> I ate bits of their brains. Lighthearted and fun. Oh my god, that's so good. He's like, I may have eaten bits of their brains. Like, whoa, Patrick, we didn't even, well, I guess that explains the freezer. The disgust in in, in his voice. I. Uh, and he's so sweaty. He's so sweaty. We're at the end of the movie right now what are we doing sure we are yeah <laughs> so i mean that head in the freezer i love that uh, for some reason i went to i went to imdb because i wanted to figure out the exact year this movie was set in and having the speech with ronald reagan right in the very end 87 really 87 exactly and then underneath that somewhere it was talking about achieving that special effect with the head by just having the actress sit in the freezer oh with god the sh- with the shelf it's not a real freezer like it's it's a prop freezer movie magic baby wow. <laughs> but yeah they just had her sit in there they put the shelf around her neck and then you just didn't see the rest of her body because it was all hidden classic classic (laughs) move yeah so the scene where he kills jared leto is incredible it's amazing and every single time i watch it it's better and better and better and i think that just comes down to every single person in this movie having a real deep understanding of the characters yes of the tone of the universe they're in oh man it's amazing even evelyn patrick's supposed fiance yeah yeah, yeah. uh, played by reese witherspoon she has so much so few scenes in the film one of them she just shows up with a pig and then it's gone at a christmas party they got a whole pig for that scene (laughs) but it's like a requirement We should have been looking in the credits for Pig Wrangler. I want to oh. know who was there that day. You have to, like anytime you have an animal, you have to have such a huge team. Surround, same with kids, <laughs> surrounding that for film. So the fact that no, we're pushing for the pig. The big, the Christmas pig has to be in the scene. The pig stays in the picture. <laughs> Also, you know, like if we're just talking about like like ancillary characters, like I want to give a huge shout out to Samantha Mathis who plays Elizabeth, Lewis's fiance that Patrick Bateman is sleeping with. She's oh, amazing. She's consistently one of my favorite things about this movie. Oh yeah. She is so sad. Yes, she she is a pure Brady Ellis uh, oh. female character, right? Like if I don't see you before Easter, have, have a, a good, good one, one, okay? <laughs> Man, that Patrick. fucking scene. Happy Easter. Oh, fuck. Mmm, that sounds good. Is this Dorcia? Oh, yeah, where they're at, they're at Barcadia. <laughs> man, he's like, here, just take another lithium. Fuck! Every, every scene of this movie is great. And, like, I love this movie so much that when I see that it has a 64% on Metacritic or a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, I'm like, why? Why not 100? I don't understand. I might be the humor because we go into movies with a, a dark taste, a dark sensibility. Mm. It might be the fact that a lot of people aren't willing to go there with dark things. The fact that this film is quite violent, but also very humorous. And and that's maybe what's so great about it, too, is that Patrick Bateman is like a huge dork. He's a huge dork because that's how he sees people. So, like... He's not a dork boy. Cho- he's not a dork by choice, John. No, not at all. He's he's not a dork by choice. He's a dork because that's just how he he wants to fit in, man. Like oh, again, like ev- I want to fit in. Oh boy, <laughs> like the line delivery from every single actor in this film for every single goddamn line is so perfect. And well, I'm, gonna I guess, try, I'm gonna try not to say that a thousand times throughout the other. Well, the next I guess half maybe hour. we should because we're, we were kind of touching on it. We should talk about some of the individual characters. Let's do it. Let's talk about Christian Bale. Sure. Because 
he is this movie. He is Patrick Bateman. And it's such an iconic performance that to imitate Patrick Bateman is to imitate Christian Bale's performance of Patrick Bateman. That's very true. I mean, if if I were to reread the novel now, and I'm sure the first time I read it, mm. I pictured Patrick Bateman, Christian Bale. See, I even said, I picture Christian Bale. This is probably definitely the first of his, like, dive deep on this character, right? Cut down, get 0% body fat, and then from this, like, lose all of the weight and do the machinist, and then become fat. I mean, and he's do super America. fit in this movie. He's like, crazy so fit. fit in this movie. And his skin is really good. Maybe it's all those night masks. Did you get any tips from that skincare routine? <laughs> Shut up, John. <laughs> <laughs> that was my um, New Year, New Me for the quarantine. That <laughs> So you're going to hear this a lot on the podcast from now on? No, I was just telling them oh, about the skincare thing that I promised myself that I could let everything else go, but my, <laughs> <laughs> my focus for staying a sane human being during quarantine was that I was just going to focus on moisturizing and having a good skincare routine and like every night putting on moisturizer and finding some fun serums and it's kind of exploded into a thing. It's a hobby now that I never had before that the quarantine has blessed me with because I can't leave my house I, and I, I have Prime. I mean, that's a perfectly fine hobby to have. You probably haven't seen the sun nearly as much as you would have if we were able to leave the house. I honestly can't say that I've noticed a difference, but I feel like I have a purpose in my life. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, as far as hobbyists go, I think Patrick Bateman's hobby is being a human, right? Is that his hobby? So here's, here's the thing. Like, when you look at serial killers that are like a Patrick Bateman, who are fitting into society versus like a Richard Ramirez who is just sort of like a, I don't want to say outlaw. I wouldn't say right. a Richard Ramirez. I would probably say a uh, Ted Bundy. I was saying Richard Ramirez would be on the opposite end of the Oh, spectrum. I'm sorry. So yeah, like if you want to look at that, like there's there's a lot of Ted Bundy here in, in Patrick Bateman. So yeah, like you're, you're fitting into society, could blend in, is just a regular person, right? The, the idea there is that they're sociopaths who are just imitating what it means to be a person. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Patrick Bateman is. Like, he is he is a sociopath. He is okay. a narcissistic, <laughs> an incredibly narcissistic I'm like, sociopath. I'm getting my shoulders up. I'm getting ready to fight. Like- Let's go for it. What is, you, you think I'm wrong? Well... Oh, this is this is the meat and potatoes, though, John. Okay, well, I mean, like what I was really getting at there is that if if we're looking at Patrick Bateman as a serial killer, that is the type of person that he is. He's a hobbyist who has to pretend to be a human. If we're not looking at him as a serial killer, he is just an incredible narcissist. Okay, we're gonna put a pin in that. Sure, that's gonna be the crux of the entire podcast. It is, okay. and I know I know that, but I I want to make sure that we talk about something else before we fall down that rabbit you hole. You got it. So what else is there to talk about when in regards to Christian Bale? Okay, so I wanted to tell you a little bit about his inspiration for the performance. I'm here. It's story time. I think you will be very pleased to know. His inspiration for the performance. For the performance. And now we know that Christian Bale likes to get real meta. Sure. He gets involved. Like he, I, think he, I was thinking I about think he that trained. During, while we were watching. I was yeah. worried what he was going to be like on set. But So I, he trained for months for this. Didn't yeah, he, have, he, he fought had a personal, for the role too, right? He did fight for the role. So him and Mary Heron had signed on for the project. And then at some point during development, they decided that they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio. Apparently, Christian Bale didn't take another job for almost a year because he was still wanted to do this project so much. Leonardo DiCaprio gave out like a list of alternate directors. And I, uh, I heard at one point Oliver Stone and Leo, Leonardo yeah, DiCaprio. Yeah, and then so I see that movie. eventually uh, Leo took the beach, which was, uh, okay, uh, decisions were made. They approached Ewan McGregor, and apparently Christian Bale, like, pleaded with him to turn down the role. They were worried that Christian Bale wasn't a big enough star for it. He wasn't. 
Well, I mean, at the time, sure, if that's the, your concern. Like, it's not like... No one's... You, you couldn't just walk into a diner and be like, you see that new Christian Bale movie? No yeah, one did. and I, I, I see the point there, but I don't know if you would necessarily want star power for this character. Yeah, sure. You know what I mean? Because if you're... You gotta be, like, defensive a little bit. Like, you like, I got a reputation to keep with this. You know, like, with a guy like Christian Bale, who, like, people don't necessarily know yet... You could take a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. So inspiration for the role. Yeah, please. When asked what uh, what he based his character on or what he used for like inspiration into finding that cold face, that those those dark eyes that he has. Did he say Willem Dafoe? <laughs> <laughs> I wish, because Willem Dafoe gets Bateman-y in this <laughs> He also. sure does. If they were doing an older Patrick Bateman, Willem Dafoe is it. Yeah. Even now. Let's just, American Psycho 2.5, Willem Dafoe. Yes, I agree. So Christian Bale said that he was watching, I think it was The Late Show. Okay. And Tom Cruise was on it. (laughs) And was being like regular old Tom Cruise, which is to say crazy psycho. Yeah. And he wanted to emulate that bright light with nothing behind the eyes. That's so awesome. So he's playing Tom Cruise playing Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he wow. also, this is also a good one. It's like he, Magnolia era Tom Cruise, <laughs> I would bet. He also took inspiration from Nick Cage in Vampire's Kiss. Okay. Right? <laughs> well, that's like period appropriate, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought that was perfect. And I was like, oh man, I wish we were pairing these two movies together. That'd be fun. Man, that would have been a good double feature. But, oh well. And I, honestly, I have to say, though, that the performance is so elevated in that I don't think there's another character that you can pinpoint that is quite like Patrick Bateman. Agreed. And Christian Bale is scary how sociopathic he can look. <laughs> So this is, the- and I'm not a huge Christian Bale fan. I, I'm yeah, not. He's fine. I mean, I like the Prestige, but I'm, it, uh, I'm David Bowie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not one of those people. Like, oh, I gotta go see the new Christian Bale picture. Like, if Christian Bale's in a movie, I'm not gonna not watch it. Sure. Yeah. But uh, but it's probably also not that gonna be your cup of tea. Yeah, it's not a selling feature for me. Not anymore. He did some genre stuff. Not anymore. What? I just meant like earlier in his career, he had some genre stuff like Equilibrium and The Machinist. I haven't seen any of those. <laughs> That's fine. That's why when you were like, is this the start of his method career? I was like, uh, yes. Sure. He started here. <laughs> I don't know anything about his career. That's fine. Just talking about the idea of the blank face inspiration from Tom Cruise. I love that. It's not like he just decided that like, oh, you know, what would be great. Tom Cruise. He just happened to be watching the late show and, and that was there and he, he could see it. That's great. He's because, like, oh. Because Brady Sinellis was in New York. He was having lunch with dudes like the guys in American Psycho for, I don't know, it was like it was for a magazine piece, something about maybe the movie Wall Street, I assume. Uh, and just he had this feeling that one of the guys at this table is a serial killer. Like it doesn't. It, it. I don't know which one, and it doesn't really matter which one. And that was sort of like the nugget of the. That idea is a for, really for the book. That is a such a really fun premise because every five years or so, a, a big article will come out saying like our CEOs of corporations really psychopaths and yeah. psychopaths excel in business because they have no souls. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And every once in a while, one of those articles come out and we're like, yeah, we get it. Like fucking Mark Zuckerberg, we know we've seen his face. <laughs> um, Elon Musk, I mean, we know, <laughs> which is super fun because. I, I think our view of psychopaths is, is a lot more, especially in Hollywood, is, is pretty archaic and unevolving. Yeah. Because 
you know, there are people who have clinical psychopathy and run perfectly functional lives and don't actually fantasize about murdering people. They just, you know, use a lot more logic than we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, in a, in a sense, in a business world, is pretty essential. <laughs> but speaking of kind of... Um, sociopathy and psychopathy and how Patrick Bateman presents himself, which we're still going to get into. Sure. I'm, I'm not pushing us there. Yep. I do want to talk about Willem Dafoe first. Okay. Because his character is played so ambiguously that I don't think he's a psychopath, obviously, but he is so hard to read that those scenes are so fucking engrossing. And that's part of why this movie is so fucking watchable because every single time Willem Dafoe comes to interview Patrick Bateman, you're just like chin in your palms, looking at the screen and being like, give it to us, Willem Dafoe. What do you think? And you have no fucking idea. <laughs> no idea. He's either like a bumbling cop idiot. And he's smiling. and he's Or like, he's yeah. really on the case. Yes. Or he just doesn't know. Or, and like he's just like doing the beat, just like checking off a name off the list, right? And didn't like they achieved that unbalanced feeling that you have with Willem Dafoe by essentially getting him to do three takes. There's more than that. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, all right, this time you know he did it. All right, this time you're you're not sure who did it. This time you're certain he didn't do it. And then they just like intercut all of that together. Oh. And it throws you so, like, it, it, it throws you for such a loop every time. Yeah, well, because you're looking for his gut instinct and it really does change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or us re being able to read it changes. That's great too, because it's almost like a slippery surface that Patrick Bateman can't cling on to. You know, like, and he's such a bad liar. <laughs> he's he, a terrible like, liar. So these are the scenes where I think that he's not actually a sociopath, psychopath. He's he, oh, because he's lost his cool, and because he's so slippery. The second he's put into question. So I I will at least say that at the beginning of this movie, he literally says that he feels like he's losing control, that his nightly bloodlust is bleeding into his days and it's throwing him off balance and he's very unsure of himself and he is he feels like he's losing control of himself. And I think it's just because in some sense, the idea that there are two Patrick Batemans and there's a night Patrick Bateman, like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde scenario mm -hmm. and like the, never the tween shall meet, you know, like they never bump heads with each other. And so the idea that somebody would come to daytime Patrick Bateman and ask him questions about nighttime Patrick Bateman like fucks him up entirely. Yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. But I will also argue how upset and how even as even the narrator will explain, even Patrick Bateman, the narrator Bateman, <laughs> omnipotent Bateman, yeah. will um, reveal how upset he gets if they get a bad table or if they can't get a reservation or he's just as antsy and almost anxious about the, the dinner reservations and the, and the societal pressures and the social climbing he has to do in that it affects him emotionally when he doesn't get those things. It's hard to say if it affects him emotionally emotionally though is my thing now i feel like i'm pushing you toward talking about the the side no let's we're we're talking about it we're in there okay <laughs> now that we're here officially i do i do want to state my opinion that go it, ahead it's your podcast that right <laughs> that it doesn't matter 
it's not it's not even that it's an ambiguous ending. Is it because he's like, there is no catharsis at the end of the movie? And you're like, that's it. We don't have to come to a conclusion. Well, no. So I, I don't see the ending as being ambiguous. Like, that, that, that is one of the greatest things about this movie. And I, I don't know if I've ever necessarily seen it anywhere else. And, and anywhere that's tried to recreate it is literally a recreation of this moment. I will agree with you here that the entire thesis of this film is that it doesn't matter either way. Yes. It's the, the Schrodinger's cat. It, like, he, he can or he can't, but the point is that that none of these scenes change if he is or if he isn't. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not just that it's ambiguous. Like, if you want to believe that he did, then you Go can. right ahead. And if you don't, then all of the evidence is there also. It, g- it genuinely doesn't matter. So just as we're talking about the Willem Dafoe character and how we jumble up his performance to, like, really make it elusive as to what's going on, that's exactly the same with American Psycho. As a whole. As a whole. Mm. Yeah, 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 as a whole. I, I don't think it matters, and that's the point, is that it doesn't matter. But, <laughs> like, but. but I, guess if, I, I, I guess I have to just try and, like, two-hand it where we talk about it as, as though it is or as though it isn't. So I'm actually not talking about whether or not he's a serial killer. I'm just talking about the fact that he perceives himself to be a psychopath. To, ha- to be this shell of a human being. And yeah. I think he's wrong in that self-diagnosis. Okay. I think he is very much just a disassociative asshole. <laughs> just an asshole. Sure, okay. Who's got some disassociation. So- for him, it's it's a matter of and get like taking emotion out of it. It's a matter of survival. Everything comes down to survival. So like if we see him scared on the phone talking to his lawyer, it's because it's a step backward in his survival. Same with not getting a table at a restaurant. Like it literally holds the same amount of weight. Getting arrested for murder or getting put in a bad table in a good restaurant is a step backward because his goal is to be on top. And so he has to always be climbing. And he but that goal has to come from somewhere. That the, goal has to come from the, the from fitting in so, and but, being a okay, human being. Okay, we're pointing at each other. This is getting <laughs> this crazy. Is great. Uh, the illusion of Patrick Bateman, though, doesn't make sense if he's just trying to fit in. Because somebody who's just trying to fit in and be a serial killer would not want to be the top. So that's that's the thing. It's it's more than just being a serial killer. And I think I kind of lost that when I started talking about like the, the type of serial killer that, that Patrick Bateman is. Because it's... It's his, not a psychopathic one, I'll his, tell you that. <laughs> his fitting in is not just to conceal the murders. His fitting in is really the, the 100% goal. Like, to be the person who fits in in any scenario is the actual goal. My point about being the top is the antithesis of that. Yeah, so this is where we have to arm wrestle. So, (laughs) well, I have another point in the fact that Nobody recognizes who he actually is, and they, this is another great thing about the film that makes it insanely watchable. Is that an no, idea of Patrick Bateman. Well, and the fact that nobody knows who anybody is, like nobody knows who Paul Allen actually is, nobody knows who Patrick Bateman as actually is. Yeah, everybody is just mixing each other up because they're all the fuck. They're all just fucking suits. Well, they're all self-absorbed, also, right? And the business cards. Oh my, the business cards. Yeah, but he is insanely jealous, so and, and envious, and all of these negative emotions that one can be tied to narcissism but can't be tied to psychopathy if his business card passes among those other business cards he should be like good job today bateman you looked like a human being i mean that's a good point and also he kills paul allen the second he's topped yeah because it's an envy thing but it's an envy. And his apartment is nicer. But it's an it's an envy for success. And the and like success 
is is part of the goal and it's part of fitting in it's part of his survival it's part of just climbing toward the top and like you get rid of the person above you however you can and like for him like the only way he could do it at that point was murder and also just well it actually has nothing to do with it like he kill he ki- <laughs> he kills him oh man that fucking like when he like he's got an axe in his goddamn face he's like try and get a fucking seat at Dorcia now <laughs> Yeah, it's because he's got higher status than him. Which so, like, I, think I see, is based on human emotion. So, sure, I guess <laughs> that isn't like textbook psychopathy or sociopathy or anything. But I think it's, I think it's. Yeah, it's I love how I'm in just, the I'm of like, that liter- I'm literally about <laughs> to throw an like an a emotion as like a descriptor. I'm like, well, I, I can't do that if if everything I say <laughs> is right. I can't can't say that it's envy, but it's not. I don't think it's envy. Like, I don't think he feels emotions. Like, I genuinely don't. Mm. And I, okay, so, like, let's, we gotta, we gotta move on, because I think we're at a bit of a stalemate, but, like, maybe we can, maybe we can explore this a little further in other things that we talk about. And you, you talking about how nobody knows who anybody is, is great. So good. Especially this time around, I noticed for the very first time in the beginning of the movie, somebody says, isn't that Paul Allen over there? And Patrick Bateman goes, no, Paul Allen's at the other end of the restaurant. And we cut to who we assume is Paul Allen, which is not Jared Leto. (laughs) So like, even he doesn't do it properly. Like even he forgets. But I mean, like maybe we forgive him because he's a sociopath who doesn't pay attention, but it seems like all every he does single is pay character does that. Yeah. Yes. To everybody. And talks shit about people that they're actually talking to. Like so many people talk shit about Patrick Bateman to Patrick, to Patrick Bateman. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and and that's the other thing too. Like the that there's an idea of a Patrick Bateman that he does such a good job putting out an empty shell into the universe that it exists without him. Is like one great because it's like he has he has he's transcended his position as Patrick Bateman but it's also crushing because he doesn't have a status like he's he's done everything he can to kind of create a dork in Patrick Bateman but he does such a good job at making a fake person that nobody even recognizes him as a real person one of my absolute favorite lines of this movie and honestly, it derails me every single time we watch the movie is when we're finally seeing Paul Allen for the first time. And the, the voiceover Patrick Bateman is telling us about Paul Allen and how they even have the same barber. Yes. And he's like, but I have a slightly better haircut. Yeah, yes. And Patrick Bateman literally does have a slightly better haircut. <laughs> and you in the whole film, I watch it the whole film from the back. You can confuse them for the same person because they have almost the same haircut. It's Insane. And I fucking love it. That's so great. It's my favorite. It's so my favorite thing about American Psycho is the two slightly different haircuts. It's I just want to say it's hard to talk about movies that you don't have anything bad to say about. It, yeah. Oh boy. But this is a fun one to talk about. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a point you're making about how Patrick Bateman is a dork, and I want to get us onto the topic of his, and I'm going to use air quotes for this, his music interests. Sure. Because I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether he's actually interested in the music he's talking about, or if he's just kind of decided that this is going to be a hobby of Patrick Bateman's. That he likes music. Yeah. Because people like music. Mm-hmm. Be- and like, he... Genu- he, he takes time out of his day to keep up with music and to listen to it. I think his obsession with music comes from not being able to experience emotions because your interest in music and your experience with music comes from a very personal place. So if he's a psychopath. <laughs> then he doesn't understand music. 
And that's also maybe why he continues to talk about it so much with so much academic understanding. He's definitely just read some liner notes or a spin article. And the, 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 his, and he quotes his, them, which is good because it's like he can't even formulate his own opinions about the music he's hearing. So he trusts what other people say about him, which also translates to the restaurants that are good or bad. Exactly. And that's because... He's trying to get across to people. He's trying to fit in by saying that I understand music. And this is exactly what this music's trying to do. It's an incredibly powerful song and moving even. One of the best written love songs of all time. And it's just like, you don't know that. You, you definitely don't know that. There's also something really fun, too, about his inability to read the room in terms of music. Yes. In that Patrick Bateman would be the worst DJ in the world. <laughs> When he puts Whitney Houston on for the one prostitute he's picked up off the street, and then Christy, and then we'll we'll call you Christy. That's that's the name he gives her. You're right. And the acquaintance who who's in his society, who's, Elizabeth, who's in his circle, played by Guinevere. I think she's actually uh, a co-writer of the film. Yes, Guinevere Turner. She is the co-writer of the film. Yeah, and well, writer, and then I'd Mary Heron. Also, I honestly right? think her and Mary Heron work together uh, a lot. Yeah, on Betty Page and Charlie Says. Yeah, yeah, they both work together on Charlie Says, which is fun. Yeah. I like I like when you see careers that span decades. It's like. Teams. It is nice to see people work together. I love teams. <laughs> <laughs> but so he plays Whitney Houston for them, and for them, they're just laughing because they're getting drunk. The idea that he would even around. own a Whitney Houston song. Well, and he's trying to sell them on how great she is, and it's just like, yeah, like I listen to this when I'm crying when my boyfriend breaks up with me. You shouldn't be listening to this on a Saturday night. No, like, he because he thinks it's romantic. That's the thing about music is it isn't just dinner. Like you're not just like I feel like roast beef tonight. Music mm-hmm. is paired with emotions yes. and moods, which Something- he does not feel. Mm-hmm. I'm arguing that if he is a psychopath, <laughs> your theory about the music is correct, and I'm just I'm just going off of that. But I don't necessarily believe that yeah. he's a psychopath. But there's something great there that yeah, I think he would be the worst DJ ever because he doesn't know tonally that some of the the songs aren't Saturday night appropriate. Although when you go to the club, they're all listening to the same music anyways. So like, what do I know? (laughs) I'm so glad that there is music in this movie because it is such an important part of the book. Yes, it's a huge part of the book. And that's something that you would expect to just get thrown out of the movie immediately. I'm sure Mary Heron had to write the nicest letters to to Huey Lewis and to Phil Collins asking permission for the music because I guarantee they probably couldn't afford it, especially Hip to be Square. Oh boy, I bet that's an expensive song. Uh, And this is a very small movie. I think part of why I see Patrick Bateman as like a clear-cut sociopath is probably tainted a bit by the book. And a lot of that comes from the music, because you may remember this, where uh, you'll flip to the next chapter, and it's just about Phil Collins Mm -hmm. for like 15, 16 pages, maybe more. It's just about Phil Collins, and maybe even just one album by Phil Collins. The novel's in first person, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. Well, all of his narration's also in first person. That's pretty much lifted from the book. And it comes, like, after a murder sequence. Like, there's a description of a murder sequence. There's a descri- There's a whole chapter about music. There's a description about dinner. And it's just because there's no differentiation between any of it for Patrick Bateman. He sees people uh, the, the same way he sees tables. You know, like, they, they are the exact same thing to him. They, he doesn't notice a difference between any of it, which is so great for the book. And it's it's genius how it's laid out and put, presented. And, like, the, the book itself is, is incredible. And the, the movie is... The movie is its own thing, and 
I could see a version of this movie with no music in it whatsoever, and it would completely taint taint everything. And it's not just because I think it's fun to hear him talk about Huey Lewis before he kills Jared Leto and stuff. And although, although <laughs> it's pretty rad. Yeah, yeah. Or him listening to Robert Palmer in the cab with with uh, with his fiance with Reese Witherspoon is great. And yeah, like it's like I was saying, it's a super small movie. I would expect that to be one of the first things that goes and. That is one of the biggest credits I think you can give this movie is is how incredibly watchable it is and how awesome it feels and it's it's time period appropriate and this and that. But like when you really watch it critically and like you pay attention to how it's made, it's a very indie movie. Like they directed the fuck out of this movie, but it's so indie. The the restaurant that they're at in the beginning of the movie, I am almost positive, is a living room in a house. Like I think they're repurposing scenes all over the place. Wow. And, and it's just like it looks very low budget, but it looks amazing. I think also too the fact that it's set twenty years in the past makes it a little bit more affordable and achievable because they're using twenty year old tech. So like they oh, could go sure. to Value Village or Goodwill and pick up a TV, and it's a like a primo TV. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good point. <laughs> they do have to find VHS copies of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre though, and all of those pornos. Oh boy. So I think this is one of the instances where both the book and the film complement each other in a really interesting way Mm. because I do not think that the film detracts from the book or vice versa. They're both uniquely their own, but they're both really awesome. (laughs) And it's really strange to live in, in a world where that, can be true because for for most you'll hear that the movie's shit or like that yeah. they didn't get this or or you have like a Game of Thrones scenario where it's really really awesome and then it just like falls off the <laughs> plate when the the source material drops off. There's really no in between and and I think American Psycho lives in this weird world where both are universally awesome and that never happens. Yeah, I don't know if I've met a single person who does not like this movie even a little bit. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure no, I'm I am sure they exist, but. I don't know. I think anybody who likes this movie would enjoy the book and vice versa. Yeah, I'll I'll agree. But uh, heads up, if you've never read the book, the one thing the movie doesn't really have is a lot of serial killer murder torture sequences. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think that's that's important. But in the book, (laughs) it gets gnarly. So much so that Bretty Sinellis had a hard time shopping the book around. Wow. And then when it was published, he, oh boy, who who was it in particular? I can't remember exactly who. It's some serial killer had a copy of it. Oh, no. Was a big fan of it. Kind of took some inspiration oh, from no. it. Yeah. He got death threats. For years. Wow. And the craziest thing- That's the worst thing if you're an author of true crime or horror novels or basically anything dark. Whenever there's like a new serial killer or new murderer is found, you're like, please don't have my book on your bookshelf. Please don't have my book on your bookshelf. Yeah, please and, don't and be a metalhead. Please don't be a metalhead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For musicians and stuff. Like, oh God, please, not another one. <laughs> yeah, I wrote this music for you, but not to kill people by. Please, please. <laughs> this was your outlet. <laughs> yeah, no. You done me wrong, Jimmy. Which is one of the saddest things, because, I mean, like, this book, uh, it took him a very long time to actually come out and say it, is an incredibly personal book. Uh, And he, you know... All of his books are about, like, narcissistic sociopaths. (laughs) 
They sure are. <laughs> and oh boy. And I, not to make any judgments, but <laughs> I'm oh man, I really I really enjoy Bryce Dennellis's uh novels. But yeah, this book, uh, you know, like he started to say that like, oh, you know, the inspiration for this was my father and my father was an abusive person and this and that, and it's it's really not true. Like there is a lot of Brendy Ellis in Patrick Bateman. But like not like he wants to kill people or anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and I think there's there's something alluring about Patrick Bateman in that he is able to turn off that thing that I, I think some of us wish we could and if we were in a um in a business situation where you want to climb up the ladder. Like oh, yeah. you wish you weren't so emotional and you sure. wish that you could only make lucrative decisions and like so I can see that there's something that you play with there with this character that there there's something not sexy, but like there's there is there is an allure to Patrick Bateman. Yeah, not the murdering part. Hey, I mean, hey, the, the, even the murdering part's got some allure. The other the, <laughs> the other thing, Reddy Sinellis apparently used to get a lot of is letters from women talking about the passages they like to read while masturbating. Oh my! <laughs> oh yeah! <laughs> oh boy! That was an interesting like, Twitter thread. Connect the people that are like the, <laughs> wanting right. to murder others with the women that are into it. Be like, you guys are pen pals now. Oh, he could officiate their wedding for them. Ready, Stanellis is creepy dating service. <laughs> uh, but what I was getting to, and I wanted to ask this question to you, is: Do you prefer the book or the movie? Which one is your favorite? Well, movies are a lot quicker to enjoy. I do love movies. <laughs> yeah, I might go with the movie. I think I would go with the movie, too. Yeah, Mary Heron, some of the shit that she pulls off in this movie is just pure fucking cinema. Like, her, and, you know, hey, maybe this is in the book, I don't necessarily remember, but, like, Christian Bale staring into the mirror, talking about the idea of a Patrick Bateman, and how, you know, I look- Pulling down the face mask. Well, that's the fucking thing, right? Like, he is wearing a mask every single day, and the fact that his face mask that he's putting on is clear is the genius move that happens in this scene, because we are talking about the mask of Patrick Bateman, and what Patrick Bateman, what people think Patrick Bateman is but I am simply not there there's nothing it is genius and like that is something that only exists in film and that's literally art like that is a hundred percent hands down pure cinema hashtag art (laughs) you don't get that anywhere else and it carries through the movie too oh yeah that's just one (laughs) fucking instance of John I I can never watch this with it with John without him pointing out like look he's obstructed there look his reflection is in the metal track there are so many scenes where he is a blur (laughs) because he's not a real person guys and the best part about that is that when he goes to the fucking restaurant and the menu is printed on steel and we can see a like blurry not real person reflection of Patrick Bateman it's like wow that's a great image but then also he fucking fixes his hair in the reflection because he has emotions uh, his- <laughs> Sure. He 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 experiences only rage and greed. Kim, I believe, are the emotions that he he says he has. And envy. This this, this is this is the other problem with talking about movies that you love. Like we're coming up on a, a we're 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 past where we normally like to go. Like it's just like this is gonna be long to edit and long to listen to. I hope it's interesting. But there's still a whole other mountain of stuff I want to talk about. And I don't know what to pick before we leave because we can't talk about all of it. Oh, this time around, I had to, I had a lot of fun paying attention to the score, which I mean, I mean I've always paid attention to the music in the mm-hmm. movie. So I think the music's great, but the score is very like Bernard Herrmann, like Psycho. So it's maybe fitting given the title. <laughs> <laughs> but like, man, is it great? And it plays really well in, in scenes. And what's 
even better than that is when there isn't any. Specifically when he goes back to the apartment where we have seen, it's like Texas Chainsaw style, right? Like, even to the point that he's walking, he's got a so fucking good. chainsaw. And it's after he was watching Texas Chainsaw, and it's in, like, the height of his... His, his frenzy Maybe mode. fugue state. Yes. Yeah, there's there's bodies hanging up in dry cleaning bags inside the closet. Because he's in the Texas Chainsaw house. Right? Exactly. And and, and Christy is Sally. Christy is Sally. <laughs> like, he specifically asks for blonde girls, you know? And uh, he comes back expecting there to be a whole big mess that he's got to clean up, that it's going to stink, and there's nothing there. Oh, that scene is so weird. The it's... sound, I think what really makes that scene weird is the sound design. Mm. Like, it's it's like that fucking scene in Lost Highway when the weird guy shows up with his cell phone. Like, it's just like all of the, like, there's no air in that scene, and there's just a hum, and there's just like, like the, the, the bass is at a point where it's just like rattling inside your brain, and you feel very uncomfortable about all of it. And they do the exact same thing again when he's talking to his lawyer. That's a really uncomfortable scene, where he's explaining, like, that I've done all this stuff, and I'm Patrick Bateman. And it's just like the, the whole thing is void of sound. And it's gotta be what it sounds like. Not that I've experienced it ever before. <laughs> when you're like pumping full of adrenaline and dread and fear. And all you can hear is just the sound of the blood pumping between your ears. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm sorry. Was there something you wanted to talk about? I just kind of steamrolled the last no, 20 that was, minutes. That was great. There's ah, it's just there's so much. This movie's incredible. So yeah, the answer is the movie. I choose <laughs> I choose the movie over the book. <laughs> Whew. I will say, if you're looking for book recommendations and you've already read American Psycho, and if possibly also read Bryce Dallas's first novel, um, Less Than Zero. Less Than Zero. You got to check out Lunar Park. Lunar Park is like. Brady Stanellis' attempt at writing a Stephen King novel. Brady Stanellis himself is a character in it. He's the main character. Deals with some really weird stuff, and like maybe there is a character or person pretending to be Patrick Bateman, or the fictional Patrick Bateman comes Sounds to life. Sounds like an episode of American Horror Story. It, yeah, American that's a Horror great Story, Brady Stanellis. Yeah, <laughs> yes, A-H-S-B-E-E. <laughs> Are there any other, like, dozens? Are, are, I think is there we anything? should get to the ratings. Okay. I know, John. Mary I, Heron, you're great. Even it's though such a fucking good movie. Even though you don't consider this a horror movie, that's a pull quote from an interview that we have on our website that Jessica did for The Expecting, which uh, she backed to horror again for Quibi, R.I.P. I think, yeah, this movie's incredible. This is just one of the most, like, all-time horror movies ever. It's very good. It's so funny that this movie essentially ends with it doesn't mean anything. And we're like, ooh, nihilism. Yeah. Well, well. also just the idea that, like, it, it, you know, there's no catharsis. There's no deeper meaning. There's a big sign behind him that says this is not an exit. And I don't know how to find my way out of talking about this movie. Like, it just feels appropriate <laughs> and alarming. But that's, like, such a fuck you to Hollywood, too, though, because catharsis is the crutch of Hollywood. Agreed. And, uh... It's so tasty how this movie ends. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's it is perfect though because yeah, like whether or not he's a serial killer, he exists in a world where he could be and no one would care and it wouldn't matter. So we didn't talk about with the middle of his fucking frenzy when he goes into the wrong building because even the buildings look alike. Oh, yeah. And he has to yeah! shoot the fucking doorman who still doesn't know who he is. Who confuses him for somebody else. <laughs> That's it's, such a good moment. I'm I mean, it's, sorry. It's also after he shoots some cops, the the, the, the cars car blows explode, up. <laughs> and he looks at the gun like, that's not possible. <laughs> like, oh, boy. Okay, yeah. ratings. I'm sorry. Four I'm out of four. Four out of four. Out of four. four. Okay. We've done it. It's over. American Psycho in the books. 
We have nothing else to say. I'm stopping the tape. (laughs) You're right. You're absolutely right. We got to move on. We need to talk about Kevin. Because that's the movie. That's the the movie we're going to talk about. It's called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will sleep on my You just have to rock him a little bit. Did you say mommy? No. Shouldn't he be talking by now? I wouldn't worry about it. No. He's just a boy. Just a sweet little boy. Just because you're used to something doesn't mean you like it. You're used to me. Good shot, Kevin. You're a natural. First he cries too much, then he's too quiet. And you see it as some kind of personal vendetta? You think I'm exaggerating? Listen, buddy, it's easy to misunderstand when you hear it out of context. Why would I not know the context? Franklin, pick up the phone! It's just a sweet little, sweet little Pick up the phone! From 2011, We Need to Talk About Kevin, directed by Lynn Ramsey, is currently sitting at a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, 68% on Metacritic, and 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Before we get too far into this podcast, and I know we're already halfway through, I know we're we're well on our way. Yeah, we are into this podcast. <laughs> but I do want to take a second because I think there's something really unique about this movie in, one, I wasn't expecting it to be as fucking dark as it is and uh, as depressing. But I wanted to read some clinical definitions of sociopathy and psychopathy because I know we were using them kind of interchangeably for American Psycho. Oh, with no understanding necessarily of how they are except um, for how it's portrayed in films. <laughs> But I think there would be something interesting in talking at the end if we think either of them fit that classical definition versus whether they only think they do. That's a great idea. Yeah. And I will say, before you even read that, I think this is probably as close to a clinical definition of sociopathy, right? Just based on how he is as a kid? Not yet, John! <laughs> <laughs> so psychopaths are classified as people with little or no conscience and sociopaths do have a limited ability to feel empathy and remorse. Psychopaths follow social conventions when it suits their needs. Sociopaths are more likely to fly off the handle and react violently when they're confronted by the consequences of their actions. So here's kind of a bullet comparison of the two. This comes from VeryWellMind.com. Okay. Sociopath. Make it clear they do not care how others feel. Behave in hot-headed and impulsive ways. Prone to fits of anger and rage. Recognize what they are doing but rationalize their behavior. Mm. Cannot maintain a regular work and family life. Can form emotional attachments, but it is difficult. Psychopath. Pretend to care. Display cold-hearted behavior. Fail to recognize other people's distress. 
have relationships that are shallow and fake, maintain a normal life as a cover for criminal activity, fail to form genuine emotional attachments, may love people in their own way. (laughs) What? (laughs) I did not expect that at the very end. That was cute of them adding a little pro in there. They may love people in their own way. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. So basically, I think sociopath is maybe somebody who understands right from wrong and feels maybe some small repercussion of it, whereas psychopaths, I think, are always feigning that emotion. That's interesting, because I guess anybody who has any training or education in psychology has been laughing at this podcast and will probably continue to do so for the next 30 minutes. I don't know. Because uh, now I'm very unclear about who a Patrick Bateman is. And, oh, my God. Reading and... that, I was like, he's both of these. Which is interesting in, regarding the ambiguity of that movie. And also, like, I'm, I'm still maybe at a little bit of a loss about Kevin. It seems like he's more of a psychopath. Oh, boy. Do I not know? <laughs> yeah. Unlike American Psycho, where we are just sort of dropped into Patrick Bateman as he is at, what, 27? I don't want to talk about it. 25? Like, how fucking... Oh! Um, (laughs) We really get the whole picture of Kevin from his childhood up to 18, actually. Uh, he's, He's quite young in this movie. I thoroughly enjoyed with how this story unfolded. It's very fragmented in how much information you are doled out. You start with the aftermath and you you only get the puzzle pieces in kind of a dreamlike way. And because of all of the like the visual I want to call it poetry, but I don't want to sound like a a huge nerd. There's a lot of there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of really like visual connect the dots in this movie that are so lovely, even though the film itself is like a very dark subject matter and it's very hard to watch emotionally. I think one of the greatest examples of that is the juxtaposition at the very beginning of the movie with the uh, tomato fight in Italy, France. Where does that happen? I don't know, but but we are never going to that. (laughs) <laughs> that was okay. I know this was a very, very dark film. It peaked at the beginning for me. I do not like yucky things. And, like, that's not that yucky. It was quite yucky. Nah, that's just a bunch of smashed tomatoes. That's not that yucky. Oh, that sounds great. That's like a pillow fight that gets well, saying that it's a pillow fight that gets like wet is gross, but it was so gross. It would sure, I do. It would smell so good. What are you talking about? What are about? you talking about? It would just smell like tomatoes. What and sweat. It would be covered it would up be by the tomatoes. the grossest spaghetti sauce you have ever encountered in okay, your life. Okay, well, the moment and dirt that... and pebbles and road bits. The part where they lay Tilda Swinton in the street and they start, like, shoveling the tomato over top of her is maybe too much for me. I don't want anybody to pick any juice up off the ground and start whipping it around because it's all foot juice. But but, so red... but I think it's great. I love it. And and because, too, we, we fade in, like, we go from, like, the, the joyful... Uh, sounds of people having fun and celebrating and fading in screams that Tilda Swinton hears in her dreams at night. Yeah, her... Oh, I guess I want to describe it as, like, the PTSD that she experiences. Although, it's depicted in this film really well visually as the beginning of the film in the future tense or in the present day. Her now modest house, Mm -hmm. very small, compared to when we flash back in time, gets covered in red paint. Just covered in it. Yeah. And 
the film really echoes this red sentiment. Sure does. Throughout the movie, and it starts with that tomato experience. So the first the first red experience, and it's such an it's such an interesting opening scene because it kind of has nothing to do with anything. But so my theory here with the red, and this isn't like a huge like leap I'm making. I'm sure this has been talked about online because it is kind of a, uh, a primary color theory. Yes. Is that the red paint and all of the red that follows her throughout the movie is the stain of oh, yeah. Kevin's actions Absolutely. on her life. The tomato sequence, the travel, was the last stain, the last kind of social norm that she balked or this wild thing she participated in that was of her own doing. Okay. So it's like the last stain of her own. Right on. Because when she falls in love with Franklin, they get pregnant pretty quickly. She moves into a house and out of the city, which she doesn't want. This kid has got colic and it won't stop crying. And then he's late to speak and he's late to go to the bathroom. And like, so she just descends into this life and becomes this person that I don't think she was initially intending to be. And it was a series of small compromises that kind of seeped little bits of her soul out. (laughs) Oh, that's sad. But I mean, hey, what are kids but stains on the futures we've built for ourselves in our minds? So yeah, so I I think of the tomato sequence as her last stain of her own that she owns herself. I think that's great. You know what I mean? That other people like, ew, you did that? That's so weird and gross. And like all those strangers. But she loves travel. Obviously, she wrote a travel book. She's she's in the future still trying to be in travel. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's the last like happy memory that's fully her responsibility. I think you're totally right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is interesting to see when big splashes of red show up in her everyday life because it's usually around a time that she's reminded of what Kevin did. And at first, when you're watching the movie, because it's told in fragments, and you're watching for the first time, obviously, you don't quite know the scope of what Kevin has done. I mean, judging from the title itself, we need to talk about Kevin. We assume something's up with Kevin. But when we we flash back, her present day and her previous life, her earlier life, are very starkly different. She has a husband. They have a young daughter. And none of those are present in her present day life. No, right? Like, that's the first indication that things are bad. And it's... It's unexplained, but because the film is so fragmented, you don't assume too quickly. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, there's a pretty good chance that the first time you watch this movie, you may already know a little bit about it. I think when, like, we watched it when it had come out, and we, I think we purposely decided not to know much about it because it looked interesting. It's a great title. It's got Tilda Swinton. What else do we need to know to before we buy a ticket, right? Tilda Swinton is fucking wonderful in this. Yeah, she's amazing. Like, I name a bad movie she's been in. Name a movie where she's bad. <laughs> like, let me <laughs> let me clarify that. <laughs> Name one movie where Tilda Swinton is bad. Dang, it's real hard to try and find a jumping off point, like specifically for things to talk about because it's fragmented. Maybe that's part of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I do love how it's presented. I think it's not just because I would be so bored if we just started with her in 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 the Tomato Festival and then she meets John C. Riley and they have a kid it would be so boring and I hope that's not how the book is cuz I would like to read the book one day and I think it's partly because like that's just how your memory works right like when you think about things you don't think about a memory or your life as as a book that you open and start from beginning to end, it's just like flashes of things from all over the place and how they, they blend together. You're reminded of things, things come back up. The color red is a big, uh, a big factor in your life. Well, and as Kevin's mother, this is 
a stain on her life. Like, I, I don't want to keep saying a stain, but this incident follows her everywhere. And that's why we keep going back into the past, because when she's at the grocery store, there's a woman there who we don't really know quite why she hates her, but she does. Oh, man, when she just, like, dips off to the next aisle, that is such a great moment. It in front is, of all the, the red In front of all the tomato cans. soup cans, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Eva is... This, sorry, this movie is so full of Leonardo finger points. <laughs> oh, a lot of them, yeah. Um, especially any time where the, the parents are together in a room and you're like, say it, say we need to talk about Kevin. We're like eight-year-olds watching a movie about very, very dark stuff, being like, say the title. Yeah, I don't care if I'm eight or in my 30s. It doesn't It doesn't matter how old I am. I always like hearing the title of a movie in a movie to the point where I almost get cheesed when it's not there. Like, if somebody doesn't say it, I'm just like, what, why? Why did you even name this movie? This It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, the, the interesting thing, thing about We Need to Talk About Kevin is that We Need to Talk About Kevin, the line could go anywhere in this That's fucking the thing, movie. Right? Yeah, it could go absolutely anywhere. It should go everywhere. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to drop this right here because I think this is just going to give us something to chew on that will sort of like go back to other moments of the film. We can agree that the main character is Eva, right? Like that's that's very it's a very silly thing to say, but before I move on, I need to say that we are in the perspective of Eva Tilda Swinton's character the whole film. Yes. We see this whole thing through her eyes. Yes. Could it maybe just be that Kevin wasn't a sociopathic or psychopathic child? Like she says, like, I'm trying to connect with this kid, but he's evil and rejecting me. Uh, Could it really just be that she couldn't connect with her kid and then was ascribing all of this evil nature to him? I mean, that's plausible. Like he wasn't. Like, part of what made him who he is is that his mother refused to love him. And, like, we see that before he's even born. She did not want to get pregnant. She did not want to have that baby, I really don't think. I don't think she wanted to marry Franklin. And at no point in any of the pregnancy did we see her experience anything close to joy. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It's like, there's, there's such a good moment where she's leaving her pregnancy class and she's walking through all of these, like, I don't know, five or six-year-old girls who are ballerinas having the greatest time. And she never even comes close to flickering a smile. Not that she should have to or anything, but, like, at no point does she find any interest in children whatsoever. But, I mean, if you believe in, like, the magical process of creating life she could very well already know that he's bad yeah oh like, like she's just a like bad oh, seed. This one's or like no something's good. not right i mean realistically definitely maybe po- something postpartum or a hormonal issue yeah. or a psychological issue like lots of things can happen in pregnancy for you to feel a disconnect between the mother and the child or the mother and the pregnancy those are all things that should be talked to with a doctor who's who can professionally say things like that yeah but Yeah, I mean, if you believe in, you know, higher powers and things, and if the gift of life is this magical process, like, maybe he's, he was evil from negative one. Yeah, I I, I guess what I'm arguing is that there, there exists a version of this story. I don't know. Remember the first time we shot on baby Kevin, on little Kevin, he was giving mega Damien eyes. We're seeing it through her. That's how she sees her son, though. He was omen-tastic. But that's how Eva sees him. 
and it's not like he just becomes a a a nice kid when dad comes home because he's he's do now i will say i i am just playing devil's advocate here because no, totally. I, I i am i'm very much with you on this side where I just he's had fucking real, evil from day one <laughs> and, and you're right too because we are in her perspective i had such a hard time liking little kevin yeah but maybe I, he lights up when dad shows up because dad's the only one who's happy to see him Okay. And I'm not saying okay, it's like okay, I, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing there too is that what's what's real. What I what I like about that is that in present, where Kevin is in jail for what he did, everybody is blaming mom for making him the way he is. And so now, what I'm doing, looking back on like all the baby stuff, is essentially asking whether mom made him the way he was, which is maybe possible uh, because it it. it uh, she doesn't let herself off the hook, though, is the other... Eva's a great character, I think, is what <laughs> I'm trying to get at. Are you making a point here? So I, I need to skip ahead to the end. If you haven't seen We Need to Talk About Kevin, real big spoiler here right now. Uh, he kills a bunch of people, like, at school. He is, he's, he's quote-unquote a school shooter. Uh, he uses a bow and arrow, though, which is a real interesting touch. That was a choice. Of, oh, right? But... He kills his dad, and he kills his little sister, and he purposely leaves mom alive. And he lets her experience this as everybody else does. The world knows before her that her son has murdered a bunch of people. She comes home to find her dead husband. Like, her entire family is gone, and now she's just got to live with this. And that could be, like... Kevin's last fuck you for the rest of his life because it sure as shit ruins everything for her. Yeah, it was pretty or... vindictive as as far as like how do you even judge the <laughs> scope of how bad something like this is? You know what I mean? Yeah. Travesty all it's, around. Yeah. A very vindictive travesty. <laughs> or it could be that he has tragedy. spent his tragedy. It's, it's 100% a tragedy. It could be also that he has spent his entire life up to fucking 16. He's like three days away from turning 16 before he does this uh, with a mother who hates him and it's shaped who he is. It's colored his whole world and he literally kills everybody uh, but her. So the only person left in her life is him and now she can only focus her attention on Kevin and now it's kind of just like the entire world hates you. I also hate you, but guess what? I'm the only thing that might one day love you. And so it's like, try again. John. <laughs> Which I think is interesting, but I, I, just, I don't know that's 100% what the movie's me doing. Me watching right? <laughs> this movie, I was just like, why does she still live so close? Why is she visiting him in prison? This is what's so great about her character, because she should just leave. But she feels responsible. There were so many moments in these flashbacks where I was like, just go for cigarettes, honey. Just just go. Just oh, you drive. mean like, like when Kevin is still Bella a child? Bella Louise it. Just go. <laughs> Live in France. <laughs> Franklin loves the kids. He'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, John C. Ry- John C. Riley in any movie and probably real life looks like a great dad. <laughs> yeah, he, he. I think it's just because he looks like a happy, nice dude. Yeah, totally. And that's all kids want. That's all kids want. That's all Kevin wanted. He gets along with Kevin, no problem. That's such an evil move, though. Like, I'm, I'm flipping. I'm turning the switch off. Okay, that theory's gone. We are, we are back to Kevin is evil from fucking day okay, one. Okay, I think you. I honestly, because they painted Kevin so evil, I did not watch it that way at all. And I would love to watch the movie again with the nature out of the picture, only nurture, because it's very. You're so right in that we are looking back through Eva's eyes, and Eva is a hundred percent in nature camp. Oh yeah. 
Like, yeah, yeah. Ke- she thinks Kevin is the spawn of Satan. Yeah. And he's out to get her. Agreed. And like to the point where I think she even thinks that like his colic is is on, on purpose. purpose. <laughs> Which is hilarious because it means that as an infant child, he knows what's going to make her life bad <laughs> and he ruins it for her at every opportunity. Which is impossible. I love that scene where she's she's got him in his in, in that weird stroller that no one owns but everybody wants. But goth that gothic bassinet, right? Yeah, like oh, that. Oh yeah, it's so good. Uh, and, and she's she's that is the pr- that is the Adams family house of prams. Yeah, <laughs> but she's she's in the middle of the city just hanging out near a guy with a jackhammer so she doesn't have to hear him that screaming. That was such a dark Fuck, scene. I love it. And the the glazed far off look she has, you're just like, oh honey. I'm so. Glad you brought up that glazed far off look because it is a prominent character in this movie for me. Like this is something else, <laughs> something else that I was watching. Like fucking Lynn Ramsey just like has this like, such an incredible understanding of where she wants to put her camera. I cannot get over how incredible this movie looks. It's the same thing with uh, you were never really here. Like I, I really encourage you to check that movie out too. Um, even in the scene where she is giving birth and we're only on the ref- like the, the warped oh, it's reflection. Oh, so good. Fuck, it's great. But the, the far off glance thing is something that we go to a lot in this movie. And, uh, and I, I, there's some incredible close-ups of like eyeballs in this movie during that far off gazed out glance. Um, I think the first time we see it is, well, actually, you're probably right. It's probably with the pram, like where she's she's just in another world at that moment because it's just like one second of rest uh, in this just nonstop 24-7 scream fit. But when she's standing over the photocopier at her new uh, at her new job and you can just see the light from the photocopier just like bouncing around on her on her pupil. It's so rad. But it also just like shows that she's not here right now. She's just somewhere else, which sometimes brings us into a memory but we also see it again when she's having sex with her husband she's got that far off look because she's not here right now and then there's this there's a great moment too where we switch once we see kevin as a teenager it's probably the the midpoint of the movie and we get that same look from him but there's a bullseye in his eye and in his pupil it shows up I'm, i'm nerding out over like such a silly little thing, but it comes up so often in this movie and it is so great. And I don't know how to talk about it other than to say that it's real good. Okay. That's <laughs> I'm very sorry. Good. I just retreated in myself. At the I, end of that. Eyeballs are great. I do want to touch on a point you made about how it's mirrored in Kevin. There's a lot of really great, I guess, close shots, like, like where we were talking about initially, where you see the similarities between the two of them. Oh yeah. And there's, I don't know. There's something dark and beautiful about the fact that even though he, I don't want to say the word evil, but even though he's cold and calculated, sure, haven't diagnosed him yet, <laughs> he's still her son. They still Very much so. share genetic code. We see the first time we see him at the prison visitation, he's methodically biting his fingernails, yeah, and pulling them out of his mouth and lining them up and it's it's really uncomfortable and it's like a power trip and it's it's just like one of those subtle cringe things it's mirrored after eva gets all of her eggs broken by a victim's mother at the grocery store and she just buys the eggs anyways because she just wants to like bail out of that social situation which that's fine i totally get it also it's kind of like accepting your punishment in a way well the the accepting your punishment is not putting them in the bin in the in the parking lot it's taking Taking them home, cooking all of those eggs for dinner. And eating them. And the (laughs) the mirroring here comes from 
the the punishment, the self-punishment or the self-flagellation almost of her having to pull the broken shells out of her mouth and she lays them out on the edge of her bowl just like the fucking fingernails. Right, yeah. There's a few other scenes like that, but that one really stood out to me as like these silent things that show that they are cut from the same cloth. Oh, yeah. Which... I, and I'm sure it would be great to to watch a documentary from family members of people who have done really terrible things and see how they feel about that capability being in their genetics or in their family line or because without putting blame, you know what I mean? There's something so interesting about the trauma that carries and, and ripples through families. And I think you would have to simply say that it's nature in order to continue living. It's probably easier to just say he was born like this and it's it had nothing to do with me. And if, if it was but anything to do sense, from nurture, it was from society. But if you're in, if you're in that family line both things make you feel guilt and shame oh yeah because if it's nature it's your fault if it's nurture it's your fault it depends how you look about the development of the human brain right like if it's just if it's just a bunch of chemicals and the chemicals are out of whack then it's just like it's not i mean like there's the yeah i i I wasn't in there putting in every individual cell while he was yeah, just it's like not incubating like, inside me. It's not like you pick through all the eggs and find out the yeah. one that's got the best shot at a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> the craziest thing is the one that's probably like Yet. got the best shot at becoming the CEO of Amazon or something is the same egg that's going to maybe murder a whole lot of people. Yeah, I shouldn't like, have said okay, that. Okay, this one, but you got to get him into hockey you real quick. Real quick. <laughs> Oh, and keep them away from pets. Fuck. <laughs> I can't stress this enough. That poor guinea pig. Was it like Mr. Snuffles? Oh, something like that. Because <laughs> John C. Riley was like, he got snuffed. <laughs> oh, yes, that's exactly, yeah. <laughs> he got snuffed. I was like, you're terrible, but yeah, he. You need the humor, right? Oh, but he puts him in the fucking Gerberator. Sure does. Oh, Gets stuck in I that I couldn't gerberator. even watch that scene. Does it, like, does red come up or nope. anything? No, okay. it never does. But, I mean, there, we do cut to Fuck, I don't remember now. I think we cut to her like cleaning off paint again. Oh, and she's got yeah, she's got blood on her hands. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's cleaning her hands. Yeah, (sighs) it's good stuff, real good stuff. And the uh, the other like big like mirroring between uh, between Eva and her son, I love is uh, is the splashing water in their face. Kevin never ends up doing it, but we still have that same shot from inside the sink through the water. The most terrifying thing about it is that it's them each facing the day it's the day he's going to do all that nonsense at the school and it's her just having to face this life that she's in with this evil son and this marriage that's falling apart and this daughter that's not safe from her other child it's a fucked up situation and to see the two really literally on top of each other you're just this movie doesn't let you relax at all no and then it's it's so interesting. It was a really too. weird movie for us to watch right before bed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. You really need a palate cleanser afterward because it's just real. Heavy. When it ended, my shoulders were up really high. <laughs> You're just like hunched over, like oh yeah. god, my stomach. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one. It's it's almost the exact opposite of of American Psycho to a degree, right? Especially in how you feel about the violence in it. Yeah, because there's something silly and fun and tongue-in-cheek about American Psycho, but all of that air of tomfoolery is just not in this film. This this is a mostly humorless movie, yeah. But I mean, if we're talking about commonalities, there are reindeer antlers in both. (laughs) That was a big surprise. Reindeer antlers at an office Christmas party. All right. That's 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 how we've justified this double feature, folks. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. 
shooting from the hip on this one. Oh, but... the guy at the travel agency, though, is a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. He's a horrible human being. God, there's so few good ones in this movie. <laughs> like, really, like, two... Every, everybody that got killed was probably a good person. Uh, and everybody else that was left over, not so much. Except for that kid who was paralyzed by her son. Oh, yeah. And, like, came up to see if she was doing okay. I know. God damn. Wow. And that's... Before we've 100% concrete knew what her son had done. Yeah. But then we flashed to him, you know, with an arrow, like, in his leg or whatever. And yep. you're just like, oh, God. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I do want to say, though, that uh, John C. Riley, his character is interesting in that he doesn't see the same things Eva sees with Kevin at all. And, and... Eva paints it, or or the film, how we see the film, is it's Kevin's doing. He's very vindictive towards his mother. He does a lot of cruel, childlike punishments towards her that are not visible in front of dad. Apart from the things that, you know, he can't really hide, like the uh, the bathroom incontinence and stuff. <laughs> but he really <laughs> punishes his mom with it. Yeah. At no point, though, does John C. Riley offer to be the home care and her to go back to work as a writer. They never reverse roles. She remains the primary caregiver. And, like, I really feel like it could have turned out better for this family if maybe Franklin took a more active role in parenting because he clearly has a more natural closeness with Kevin. Just maybe gonna put that out there. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point. That's or at a... least maybe they would be on the same page and get Kevin into proper fucking counseling or treatment or some kind of something. Man. You know, like, the interesting thing is, um, like, I think about this sometimes, like, in regards to marriage. But it's definitely the same with children, how you become an expert about a person, you know? Because, like, that kid is... Okay, maybe maybe I should simplify this by saying that babies kind of become experts in you. They are really great manipulators. Well, they're great manipulators. Babies are the they... best to watch. Yeah. Like, he laughs when I do this. It's just like, because he knows that you'll fucking love him more if he learns how to do the laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just... And babies it... are little masterminds. They it's, Masterminds is the absolute right way to put it because they can masterminds get whatever emotion they need <laughs> out of you and also they can get whatever you got in the fridge out of you <laughs> by just how they react to things, how they ask for things, and... We see that in Kevin. Like, Kevin, it's it's almost like he knows everything about her the moment he's born. I think this goes back into, like, it's all in Eva's perspective. But, but yeah, like, uh, he knows how to push her buttons. He knows how to push buttons she didn't even know she had. And it's, it's so fucking cruel. It's especially cruel. So there's an instance when he's little and he gets very, very ill. Like, he's throwing up. He's, like, passed out in the top hall. So I, okay, sorry, you go ahead. I got a theory about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but he's, it's almost like he's too sick to be cruel to her. And also he's sick. So he, he wants care. He has that natural childlike instinct of like, I need my mommy. Sure, and yeah. Read he, me another story. Yes, he lets her read him a story, which I don't know if you know, it happens to be Robin fucking Hood. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Because yeah. he, he is also, man. There's a oh, lot of stuff in there about quivers and feathers. and He's yeah. also, he's wearing a Robin Hood hat, uh, like, when he first gets his, like, suction cup arrows, which is, like, whatever, you know, kids, Robin Hood, everybody... Robin Hood story. <laughs> Robin pop, Hood. Pops up at some point. <laughs> I'm generalizing, but just because it like Robin Hood was something I liked as a kid. I don't know if all kids like it. Anyway. But he's so 
kind and needy of her. But then it's almost like he can't not be who he is. So he flips to the dad temporarily and he's like really rude to the dad offhand. And then by the time he feels better the next day, it's completely switched back to. Oh, yeah. She comes in to see him in the morning. He's like, I can put on my own fucking pants (laughs) or like whatever. I think, honestly, this never comes up again in the movie. And I was I was looking to see that if it did, I think he had a seizure. Like, I think maybe he fell and hit his head. I, I don't know. But, like, I think he had a seizure. And it's like he... What are you implying? Yeah, I broke down in my sentence there really weird. <laughs> but, yeah, so he's, like, really calm and docile and, and polite after afterward. And I think that might be because it's, like, his body gave him electroshock therapy. Mm. Like, I think the surgery was just, like, a jolt that he needed. You mean the seizure. You said surgery. I said surgery. Yeah, I think the seizure was... Like a quick little tiny reset. Yeah, well, I think it does, like, fuck up the electrons in your head. It does. I was really surprised that there weren't more scenes of that where he was on some sort of medication for it. Because, yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly what was happening in that scene. It's not that he chose to be good or that he was too sick. It's just that his brain chemistry was different for a short period. Yeah, that's that's a good theory. I mean, it's really weird, though, that we only see the one doctor's visit where basically the doctor's like, yep, no, he's fine. And Ava's like, oh, good. That's great. Oh, good. I love this son so much. I wish I could just bring him home right now. Every mom wants to hear that their son's fine. Like, you're sure you don't see evil when you look in that ear? <laughs> is it is there inferno burning in there? <laughs> and he never gets diagnosed with anything. And I think that stems from the disconnect between Franklin and Eva. They are not on the same page about Kevin at all. And he never gets any type of medical overview. A psychologist never even gives him a once over. No. That family doctor who specializes in kids can't diagnose whether or not a kid's a psychopath or a sociopath or requires more diagnostics. Especially if he's incredibly intelligent and hiding it from everybody but the one person he's tormenting. Fuck. What an evil shithead. Yeah. It, and it's like, okay, so he may or may not have blinded his sister, which we haven't even gotten to. Oh, yeah. Well, after that, the Drano was accessed to melt the guinea pig that got shoved in the Gerberator. Yeah. He blinded his sister. Well, I think he just left it on the counter. It's not his fault. Mm. (laughs) She has to thank him for calling the police. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, that's a good moment. Oh, that's a good moment. And he's eating that that fruit that's just essentially an eyeball. What do you think of their really weird mommy-son dates they do? These, like, scheduled, almost clinical hangouts they have. Don't they only have one? I think they go on a couple. Oh, because it's, eh. Um, I think that's just her fucking trying, you know? It's weird that he doesn't just say no, because he knows that she'll be more uncomfortable if he just goes and is himself. Yeah. Yeah. Like when they go mini putting and it's fucking freezing and he's just there in a t-shirt and jeans and you're just like, can you just be fucking normal for fucking once? You know, that's a a good moment too because she has her little thing about fat people. I honestly didn't feel as like a genuine thing. I think she was just trying to connect with him over something cruel and maybe mean. Yeah. Because to her, that's a personality point of his. Yeah. And it may have been her trying to connect with him on his level. By <laughs> it saying, just didn't work. <laughs> by saying something like rude and he was just like, yo, that was rude. And she's just like, fuck you. <laughs> if there was no one else around, like you would have high-fived me, you shit. 
Oh, I love that scene too, where she's talking about trying to like make a room special, you know, so it shows your personality. And he's like, "What personality?" And he like, he just doesn't have one. It's true because like everything that's in his room is just fake. Oh, oh, th- 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 there's another great scene where we got a close up on eyeballs and light reflecting off eyeballs, where he's just staring into staring into his computer screen after she's completely melted hers and the entire office's computers with his virus, saying that there is no point. That's the point about collecting. Because that's essentially, like, his comment on just, like, things that people do. And, like, let's be real. Haven't you been a cynical teenager who felt the same way? Like, don't, shouldn't you have a hobby? Shouldn't, don't you want to collect something? Like, why? There's no point. So he collects something that is not worth collecting. There's no point in collecting anything, so I'll collect something that has no point in being collected. Viruses. <laughs> yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, you know, up until the murdering stuff, he's just a normal teenager. Like, it's kind of like he was born... A shitty sixteen-year-old. <laughs> like that's that's what it is. Like that's the mentality. And like, thankfully, a lot of us leave it. Unfortunately, he does kill a lot of people. It's real sad. Oh boy. So, what do you think of the final visit? So the the I love the last twenty minutes of this movie. Yeah. So the I guess it's juvenile. It is. It, he is about to yeah, go to real prison. He's about to turn eighteen. So it's been two. It's the two-year anniversary of the incident, and. Mom's allowed to visit on a day she wouldn't have normally been allowed to visit. And I think it it comes down to the fact that he's going to be moved soon. They've already got him in an orange jumpsuit and his head is shaved. And I think he got the shit kicked out of him. I also think because it's his two year anniversary and that's just what they did to him. Yeah. Like, hey, happy anniversary. We're here to beat you up. Yeah, I really like the last 20 minutes of this movie um, because it, it like really, really changes a lot of things. I shouldn't say changes, but like. You spend most of the movie saying, why wouldn't you leave? Why wouldn't you move somewhere else? Maybe you think that it's because the prison's close by, even though you two never talk to each other ever. But right before she's going to go see him, this is the first time in the movie that we realize she has a room prepared for him at home. And as as though he like he's going to be in prison for a while, she's still making his bed. She's still arranging his things. She's still his mom and the crazy like it's it's such a weird moment in the movie and i love when they bring it up and i love how they bring it up and it's not the thing you would expect this character to do after a lifetime of what she's put up with right but at the end of the day the only thing they have in common and the only thing she can really sort of like sum up is that she's his mom and nothing's going to change that. Like, in a regular drama or a romance, that's maybe a nice thing to hear. Like, I'm your mother. Nothing's ever going to change that. No matter what you do, I'll always love you. And then it's just like, well, what if they fucking killed, like, a dozen kids at school and, like, ruined an entire community? Like, does that change? And that's that's really what they're what they're playing with in the end of the movie. There's the- also a vulnerability in Kevin that we do not see in the entire length of the film. Yeah. And you see him almost being unsure about what he's done. Oh, yeah. The Man, that is there, good. Like, when she asks him, why did you do it? Like, I was really hoping that today of any day, like, you'd maybe not be a smarmy ass and fucking tell me. Yeah, you've had two years to think about it. And he says, I used to think I knew, and now I'm not so sure. Right. And this this also comes after, like, her just watching news clips of him giving interviews in prison, talking like a fucking shithead who's got a copy of Beyond Good and Evil in his back pocket, right? Just pure Charles Manson, Richard Ramirez bullshit. And it's all fake. It, it, it's, it's all nothing. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't know why he did it. He doesn't know anything. 
Which is actually an interesting an interesting character thing to do at the end of a movie that we pair with with American Psycho because there is no catharsis. We have not learned anything. <laughs> we are no longer better off knowing or not knowing what happened and why. Okay, so John MD, not actually a doctor. Yeah. This is not a, a real clinical uh-huh. diagnosis. Please do not trust our diagnoses. With our our tiny Wikipedia-esque definitions of sociopathy and psychopathy, what do you think Kevin is? Or is he neither? I don't think he's either. And I think that that's really what we get with the end of the movie. Because I think he's just like a super misguided shithead whose brain hadn't finished fully developing. And... It's really sad when you look at it through the perspective of he had a very cold mother. And that could he, be it. And he had a delayed onset of development. He legitimately couldn't speak... When he should have been, he couldn't use the bathroom when he should have been. And Eva, that one's on him. Well, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Eva definitely thought that they were punishments being inflicted upon her. But I mean, if you were to on paper look at, you know, his first five or six years, he did need a lot of extra care and affection. And she definitely pulled away when maybe she should have been leaning in. Yeah, it's almost like when people were discussing uh, like whether the Earth was flat or round, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago when that was a thing we were talking about. Not now, now that we all know. <laughs> uh, but the, the idea being like, well, surely the Earth is flat because the sun rises and the sun sets. And it's just like, yeah, but what would it also look like if, if, if it wasn't flat and we were rotating around it? It would look exactly the same. Like their relationship is the same on paper. Like whether or not he was born this way and she's just been worried about it her whole life. Uh, or he was born a normal kid and she was like super cold and it just like slowly turned him into this. Everything still is exactly the same. It just depends how you look at it. Nothing would change. Like the relationship would look the same. I I agree with you in that I, I think the ending reveals that he is a classical neither. <laughs> I think. Oh, and fuck, you know, the, know, the exact same thing goes for American Psycho. I... Or does that make him a sociopath? Like, does this correct me if I'm wrong? When you were reading the the the, the definition of so, uh, sociopathy, that like they have emotion. Yeah, but I, so beforehand, I was leaning more toward psychopathy for Kevin because it's it's cold and more calculated. Yeah, which especially explains why he would act differently around his father, specifically to hurt his mother. Yeah, and then but sociopathy. As you remember, our bullet points were hot-headed and impulsive, prone to fits of anger and rage. That doesn't fit Kevin. That kind of fits Patrick Bateman. I don't know, man. Because the other thing, too, he kills the hamster because because it's something that his sister loves and she loves his sister more than she loves him. You know, mm-hmm. and he only he only kills everybody at school when the marriage is breaking up and they're going to be separated. And because we already know how custody's going to lay out, she's going to take Celia. Dad's going to take Kevin. He's never going to see mom again. I don't know. It's tough. It's hard to say. It is tough. And I, this is why we're not psychologists. No, but it does <laughs> sound like we should probably take a trip to the library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it comes down to the fact that I don't think they're either of these characters are true anything. No. And the hardest thing to talk about in a movie like this is is the thing that I love about it the most, and it's it's how it's presented, like the way Lynn Ramsey stacks images and the repetition you were talking about, about it being visual poetry. It really is. And it does a great job of bringing back recurring images, showing you maybe just a little more or like showing it um, stacked against something else, like something horrible with something nice. And, and 
especially seeing people's faces is great. Like seeing all the people in like the grocery store that she comes into contact with that are clearly like husks of themselves because they've lost their child. And then seeing them when they're all collectively getting to school, worried about their kids, knowing nothing about what's going on, you know, until fucking Tilda Swinton sees that yellow bike lock on the door and she knows exactly what happened. Oh God. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. So knowing now what we know, what? What do we know? Oh, we don't know anything. We know that we don't know anything about <laughs> sociopathy and psychopathy. That's what we know. What are you going to rate? We need to talk about Kevin. Four out of four. It's a double four out of four for me. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of four. That's fine. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I thought it was very good, but it was very hard to watch. And Is that what? Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have a high. Half f- of my favorite movies are hard to watch. I know, but I have a high fun requirement, and I will say this movie was not fun. What are you talking about? The, the snuff ball got snuffed out. We that all was, we all laughed. There was a single fun. Oh. In a sea of unfun. Ah, uh, you didn't like that tomato thing. That set you off right away. It was so squidgy. Yes, tomatoes. Yay! I don't like so having my hands gross. I ne- ooh. You weren't there. <laughs> you but, were watching a movie. But I felt like I was there. Okay. Well, either way, that's just our opinion. Let us know what you thought of Mary Heron's American Psycho and Lynn Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at NOFS Podcast, on Instagram at Nightmare on Film Street. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. Uh, Discord at nofspodcast.com slash Discord. And of course, in the Nightmare on Film Street subreddit, you know, reddit.com slash r slash Nightmare on Film Street. And if you're a fan of Nightmare on Film Street and you want to join the super exclusive, super fun, cool Fiend Club, hit us up at nofspodcast.com slash Fiend Club. You'll have instant access to a bunch of fun extras, including membership cards, stickers and swag, access to our brand new spooky speakeasy, watch parties, live streams, bonus content, and tons more. That is at nofspodcast.com slash Fiend Club. But until next time, I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. But we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends.